The following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcast Network. For advertising information or to find more great podcasts, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com and follow us on Twitter at RealTheUnderdog. Welcome back to another episode of Create Your Shot. I am Tyler Laurie and I am joined as always by my co-host up in Philadelphia, Chris Smalls, Angelos, and Smalls, uh, happy belated birthday. You turned 29, but unfortunately, your your bedtime as a 29-year-old is is still 7.30 p.m. on a Saturday night. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna say though, you didn't say fantastic. Uh you know, a little little behind the scenes. You guys can uh obviously subscribe to our Patreon. Just kidding, we don't have one. But uh behind the scenes here, you know, we had a manager reunion here for Coach Dumphy at Temple. We got to see the Temple Tulsa game. And uh, then we had a little soiree at Urban Saloon after. It was, uh, you know, 2.30, 5.30. And, you know, smalls, you know, I get, I get in bed early. Not not really not really on the sauce too much lately. So uh, Tyler got a little pissed at me and, uh, you know, was a little disappointed. That was an out late night, eating ish kabibbles, throwing it down my throat with a little Lorenzo's to back it up. But what can I do? <laughs> well, I did have Lorenzo's on Friday night, but... Yeah, I mean, I think the, the disappointing thing, Smalls, was that uh, you, your lovely girlfriend, Rachel, came to Urban Saloon. Uh, Beth actually stayed in Nashville, so I was flying solo. So I figured, you know, a little guy's weekend, Rachel could come out, hang out with us. And she wanted to stay out, but you you had to get home and, and get a little food in your belly, some good, maybe some greens, some some good, like, clean carbs, baked chicken, and then be in bed by 745. So you know, good friends and, whoa, whoa, and whoa. 10 years of friendship just, you know, not really important to you in Philly this weekend. It's not a big deal. It's really, it's not, I'm not mad. I think everybody knows this. She said she could stay out all night. She was asleep by 7.30. I stayed up and watched the Flyers game, but I knew, see, I knew her better than she knows herself. <laughs> she was talking all that stuff. Then she would have fell asleep at the bar around 7.45. Now we're all dragged down by Rachel. Not not the third name under the bus, but I I knew the situation. As a coach, I can anticipate. Are you man? Are you mansplaining uh, your girlfriend's sleeping habits to on a podcast that she guaranteed doesn't listen to right now? Guaranteed doesn't. This will prove. <laughs> I I'm, I'm waiting for the. I'm gonna wait all week for a text. I'm gonna ask her. I'm gonna be like, hey, do you listen to the podcast? I'm gonna test her a little bit. She might say yes. She'll probably just tell me to go f myself, which is awesome. <laughs> and. uh We'll kind of see where it lies, but I, honestly, I just I knew her better than she knows herself. That's that's why I took that that leap, and you know, we grabbed some good Greek food and uh, watched the Flyers game. Got a nice early sleep. Was back out in the morning. Yeah, I, I uh, was not feeling so great uh, Sunday morning when I woke up. But we do have a guest this week, Smalls, as we do every week, and it is Mark Vanderslice. Uh, and he is the head coach of the USC Aiken Pacers, an Aiken, South Carolina Division II team in the Peach Belt Conference. They are 24-2. and They were 22-2 and when we taped this. He, he won both his games, including a win over a uh, ranked Pembroke team last Wednesday. Probably going to be top five in the country when the Division II rankings come out, uh, when you'll be able to see this when this actually airs. But Smalls, he was really good and a guy that I think is an absolute star, Division I staffer at one point, JUCO head coach, 150-20. and 20 in his career at Lewisburg Juco and now, you know, really turned it around at Aiken. But we really talked recruiting with Mark and how he decided to get the job at Aiken, how he was going to sell, how he was going to flip it, what types of guys he was going to target and and how, you know, he was going to use their, they have great facilities, he says, and 
how he's going to use that. And I thought this was the deepest conversation we had with a coach about their own recruiting philosophy and how it changes from job to job. I think, too, because it's so unfamiliar to us in the sense that it's Division Two and it's uh, Southern, right? It's like a Southern conference. It's not something we're as familiar with in terms of Division Two and recruiting. So I really wanted to understand that, especially coming from the Division One and the JUCO experience. You kind of have the best of both worlds. But when, uh, as you can see, a lot of coaches come into lower levels, D2, D3, coming from the Division One experience, and they don't yield the anticipated su- success you'd expect from a coach because you don't understand the dynamics. I think Mark really understood taking over that program and then elevating. You can see in his fourth year, and we all know the fourth year or the fifth year as a college coach is so critical, and he's having all the success, and he's really building a culture and a program. And uh, like you said, he's a rising star, and it was fun talking recruiting and how he's developed year over year at uh, Aiken. Yeah, and I think, you know, one thing, uh, they did go to a Final Four, uh, I believe, two years before you got the job. And and so, you know, coming to a program where you know the ceiling is like, hey, we can get to Final Four, we can win a national championship. He, he won. He finished his season at Lewisburg, ranked number one as a junior college. So he's seen a lot of that success. And, and he's a guy that, you know, he's not quite 40 yet. And I think this is a summer where there could be a lot of uh, different jobs at Division One level open and kind of in his base of operations in the Southeast. And North Carolina, South Carolina type areas. And, and I think Mark's a name that we could hear popping up here pretty quickly coming up in April and May, just because, like, I mean, it's very hard to argue with the amount of success he's had. And, and in talking to him, it, it makes a lot of sense. He was able to really present, I mean, ve- just a very succinct reason why, like, his plan worked as a recruiter. And, and he said, like, you know, you have to be X's and O's, you have to be able to recruit, but then also relationships. And that was something that, you know, he didn't think he did an amazing job of. They went 18 and nine two years ago. Last year regressed a little bit to 16 and 12. And we talked about what it's like as a head coach to look in the mirror and say, like, man, what did I not do right this year? Because you always, it's easy to say, like, oh, we're turning over the roster. Like, we need to get better players. We need to get different guys. And I thought, you know, suppose I thought Mark was really reflective in saying that he just didn't do a great job, you know, getting behind the curtain with guys and just being like, hey, how can we get better? Like, how can I be there to support you? How can I make you believe in what we're doing here? And, and, I, and I thought that part was awesome because, you know, he talked about you, you sell kids to get them there, but then once you have them there, you have to continue building those relationships every single day. And, and I thought that was really, really interesting. And, and like I said, they're 24-2 and two right now, like probably going to be a top five team in the country looking to host all the way through the NCAA tournament and host the Peach Bell tournament as well. So, I mean, you can't argue with the success. I think what uh, what you just said there is so true. When you look at the great coaches, and at least you know some of the coaches I really know who have been successful, recruiting's you know very important. It's a lot of the lifeblood of the program. But if you fail to focus on what you currently have, or developing your own players and the relationships internally, then success doesn't typically sustain itself. And I think that's. That's really where Mark's focus is, and, it, and you're exactly right. That's a name that Hoop Dirt, our boy Adam Nelson, I'm sure his name will be popping up on the radar there. I want to ask you a question that kind of came up, uh, and you you brought it up on your own, but it came up in the interview. How would you, Tyler, I guess, taking over a program that's had success at the Final Four le- level very recently, how much pressure – 
would that kind of put on you? And how would you, I guess, change your plan coming into the program? Or would you keep your culture and your ideas very much the same as if you were coming into a program that hadn't had that success? Well, I think that one of the things that Mark says is that, you know, you have to evaluate kind of where you've been in the past and what you've learned and everything's a little bit different. So, you know, he was a, uh, an administrative guy at Furman and an assistant at Furman and an assistant at Toledo. So he had a division one background and he was able to recruit scholarship athletes before. And then when you go to JUCO, you're turning your roster over every single year. So for him, I think when he got to Aiken, I mean, I think he just recognized like, what's the best, what are the best things that we can sell and how can I get division one transfers in to make sure that our talent level stays on par. So I think for him, I, I think you, you, the, the confidence of being so successful in the past at one way is going to allow you to continue to keep that confidence going. And so I, I was really impressed with that uh, from him as a head coach saying that, like, I knew when I got in, like, this is what we're going to have to do. And when they went six and 20 his first year, like they stayed the course and, and he knew like they, they were undermanned to start the year. And he talks about this and he knew like I had to sign some guys late. And, and he even says it like if you sign guys late, there's typically a reason they're still out there. So I think for him staying the course and remaining very positive on what his plan was allows you to kind of stay ahead of that pressure and just knowing like, all right, yeah, we're going to take our lumps this year. I'm going to learn how to lose again because, I mean, Smalls, he hasn't yeah. lost in five years. <laughs> he went 152 and 20 in five years. You're yeah. not losing a whole lot. Yeah, it's the hardest thing to do though, right, is, is, is stay the course, especially when there's so much pressure. I mean, we talk about – we talk to coaches who've taken over programs that have never won anything. I mean, Justin Scott, a recent – right, 94-95 is the last time they did anything. And he took over that program. There's not – there, there's almost a self-confidence that, hey, they haven't won before, so my plan's going to take place and it's going to unfold when I you know, assume it will, maybe in year three, year four, year five. Whereas just for me, if I was look, taking over a great program, I'd be like, oh man, year two, I'm kind of looking, like you said, looking at myself in the mirror and saying... I want to stay the course, but I've got to win now. I've got to, you know, take a shortcut here and there. And I think that's kind of what Mark focuses on. Stay the course, stay your plan. You were hired for a reason. And you've got to kind of believe in what you do and how you develop players in your program overall. Yeah. And shout out to Justin Scott, by the way, just to, you know, Mac Commonwealth coach of the year and Mac Commonwealth champs. They beat Widener on a uh, Saturday, 92 to 56. So, you know, he, he uh, stepped on their throats early. And, and shout out to our guy, Justin Scott, a little CYS bump right there uh, from, from uh, on the D3 level. But really cool interview with Mark Vanderslice, uh, Smalls. Like, just a, a guy that gets it and, and a guy that got us right away. And that's, you know, he is uh, related to Stephanie Vanderslice, Stephanie Gately, excuse me. But, uh, you know, a family that we know well and, and we banter a little bit, but he, he knows a lot of the same people that we do. And just a guy that I, I like I said, I, I would expect to hear his name a bunch more. But even if we don't, he's doing an unbelievable job at Aiken and, and he's built something down there that looks like it's going to be sustainable for a lot of years to come if he decides that's where he wants to be. And uh, so I, I'm excited for people to hear this. We do have some unbelievable interviews coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, we banked a bunch in the last uh, two weeks. So. They're going to be a little bit off in terms of timelines. We're talking to guys in the middle of the season that you guys might not hear until a week or two down the road. But we do have some just unbelievably awesome guests that we've already recorded with that I think, like I said, the show is as strong as it's ever been. Smalls, Daryl Morey listened to the Nevada Smith episode, tweeted about it. A lot of friends texted us about that. So, you know, just to know that our brand is, is getting stronger, especially as we get into the Final Four and have some, you know, other Division One head coaches come on the show when we do some of that stuff live feel really good about where we are smalls I, and i think like I, I feel great about 
our message and kind of what we decided we wanted to do, which was like, you know, be the best professional development podcast for basketball coaches. And, and not just, you know, you don't want to hear Tom Izzo and Eric Musselman give you their favorite quotes. Like, we want to get in the weeds and talk about like, hey, how'd you build this? Like, but talk us through some of the funny stories. Like, tell us what the best place to eat in Aiken is. Like, you know, tell us, tell us one day you were sitting on a plane and you were like, man, we're never going to get out of the gate. So I, I'm really happy with that, Smalls. And, you know, 110 or so <laughs> odd episodes in, I think we're really, you know, the best is still yet to come. But I'm really excited about some of the interviews we have coming up. Yeah, I am too. It's been fun. And like you just said there, we've managed to somehow stay on brand, uh, but also make this show fun, open-ended, kind of get you a different view of a lot of different levels of coaches who have done it. I think that's what makes us so unique. I don't I don't really, you know, aspire to talk to, you know, if it comes along, it comes along. But the John Calipari's of the world, it's not really as exciting to me as talking to a guy like and I'm being so truthful about this, like Justin Scott, Dan Burks, like some of the guys we've gotten to talk talk about and talk with, the Bobby Jordans of the world. Those are what make this thing fun because to me, that's the job. Like the Calparis, the Petit, whatever you want to put those names up in the high ceilings, the J-Rates of the world, that's like a very, very small percentage of this profession. The the bulk of this profession is assistants at the Division Two, Division Three, Division One level, head coaches. It's not always glorious, but there's a reason why these guys do what they do, and I think that's the stories we're telling. It's been a lot of fun. Like you said, we're going to get to go to the Final Four. I mean, that's huge. Yeah, that is uh, that is true. And, and like I said, we have a we also we've kind of broken down the NBA wall. I'm not going to tease a bunch of stuff just yet, but a couple of really fun NBA interviews coming up for those of you that only want to listen to us for NBA people. You know, expand your horizons. Haven't you heard college basketball players care more? But that is, uh, that's it for our intro a little bit longer, but enjoy this interview with Mark Vanderslice. As always, uh, get in touch with us. We are at Create Your Shot on Twitter, at Create Your Shot Pod on Instagram, Create Your Shot on Facebook, and Create Your Shot at gmail.com. Please, if you have recommendations of people that we need to have on the show, people that you guys think would be good, like a lot of the most recent guests probably over the last three, four months have been text messages and people have been like, hey, this would be a cool person to have on. This is someone I know because you know our network is getting bigger and, and it's getting stronger, but we don't know everybody. So if there's people that would be awesome, if you, you got Todd McGinnis level guests for us, please email us. Please reach out. You know, If you have friends of friends, reach out to us and, and let us know, you know the next type of people, next type of person that we need to have on. But as always, if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars. Please subscribe. Leave us a review. If you do those things and you send me a screenshot, send me your address, I'll send you a koozie. And then uh, other than that, enjoy this interview with Mark Vanderslice. And as, thanks as always for listening. Welcome on Mark Vanderslice, the head coach of USC Aiken. Uh, you guys are rocking and rolling, coach, 22-2, and two, ranked number seventh in the country. But uh, how are you today? I'm doing well, gentlemen. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. The second member of the Vanderslice family that we've had on, we, we did have Stephanie, Stephanie Vanderslice, Stephanie Gately now, uh, early on in the podcast. So it's funny to see this come full circle. But like I said, number seven in the country. Uh, I know you you actually did lose to Francis Marion, and, and you had it rolling, big time win streak before that. But you're back on track. 
what's been the key this season to to this type of success? Man, I'll, I'll tell you what. I, I think it, it comes down to really two things, and and one really is directly related, related to this year, and and the other is is uh, the fruits of our labor come from the past. I mean, you know, I tell our guys a lot that we're we're twenty two and two right now, not because we haven't had any adversity, but because we've handled adversity so well. And that's been something that's been a trademark for us uh, this year is that the fact that, hey, the adversity we've had, if you handle it and you handle it well, um, you're going to be able to, to create your own momentum. And shoot, man, momentum could be your best friend or it could be your worst enemy. But at the end of the day, you got to create it. And when it, when it comes your way, you, take, you, you jump on that surfboard and you ride that wave as long as you can because uh, it's not going to be with you forever. Uh, but how you handle that adversity, which is something that I think we've done pretty well up to this point this year, um, is something I, I would I would attribute a lot of that um, to the success that we've had up to this point. But the other the other thing that I don't think uh, gets a lot a lot of credit is the guys in the past. You know, the guys that we've had over the course of the over the course of the last four years while I was here at Aiken. You know, I mean, those guys play a big part in what we've done this year. You know, I mean. Uh, they've laid the groundwork. They're they're part of the foundation. You know, I, I call them up and I tell them thank you. You know, the, I know you're not playing with us this year, but you're you're just as much a, a part of of this successful season as you know the years past. And so, I, I like to give a lot of a credit and uh, there's a lot of gratitude and appreciation that goes in uh, to a lot of the former players that have played with me. So I'd say those two things, uh, former players that have laid the groundwork and the adversity that we've been able to handle this year, has really uh, helped us up to this point. So, so let's talk about that adversity for a second. I, I mean, this is a, a ridiculous turnaround just in the sense that when you got the job, you go six and 20 your first year. And then, you know, back to back winning seasons after, I think, 18 or 9, 16 and 12, and now 22 and 2 and, and heading to the NCAA tournament, hopefully. But that first year when you go six and 20 at, at a very historically good program, you know, kind of what were your thoughts at, in your first year on the job? Well, anytime that there's a transition, there, there's always going to be adversity. And the, the former regime that leaves, whether it's good, bad or indifferent, the culture is always going to be different. You know, you're not necessarily replacing good with good or uh, replacing good with bad. It's just different. And so when you come into a, a, a new new location, a new school, a new occupation, you've got to manage your expectations. And mm-hmm. for me, I knew it was going to be difficult because we, we had a lot of success at the, the Lewisburg, the, the former school I was at. But I also knew that the change was going to be a part of the challenge. And so when I first got the job my first year at Aiken, shoot, I think it was uh, late July is when I got hired. My, my first day on the job was August 1st. We had eight eligible players when I first got the job. I mean, eight eligible players. We couldn't even get up and down to court. And you, so, and you missed both recruiting periods. I know you can recruit fluidly, but yeah, it's like. 100%, 100%. So I had to manage my expectations going into that, that particular part of the season. So we were able to get two late additions, um, but usually get two late additions for good reason, right? And then, <laughs> sorry guys, but uh, it happens. And uh, we were able to get two other players eligible, uh, one at the one at the start of the season and one in the second semester. So we eventually had 12 players on, on the roster, but we started off with eight. Um, so for, for me, we went six and 20 in the first year. It was difficult just because I, I hate losing and, and it's, 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 you know, it's not a good feeling to be a part of a, of a losing season. The first that I've had up to that point as a head coach. Um, but what we what we ended up happening, what ended up happening is from year one to year two was probably uh, the biggest change. Um, we 
we had five seniors on that first year's team. So that really helped me with a blank canvas for the following year. The next year. Yep. And so we were able to, we we departed from a couple of guys. One of the guys joined my staff that I knew wanted to be a head coach. and, And so that made that transition a little bit easier for him. But we we went from um, year one to year two, and we brought in 12 new players. And so that very rarely happens at the four-year level. I was actually asked a lot throughout the course of that offseason, man, it, do you have a level of anxiety uh, going into the season? I said, well, not really. I coached at junior college for five years, and you did it every season. So Yeah, you're it, turning over your roster literally every year. Every year. And so for, for us, it wasn't – you know, obviously, there's a there's a little bit of a uh, uh, fear that you know a couple of those guys aren't going to mesh or work out. But it was year it was year one recruiting, and uh, we had we had a pretty good year. We went eighteen and nine. We tripled our overall conference win total. We tripled our overall wins uh, in general. Uh, but I would say that the the biggest struggle for me was year three. Um, we went from six and twenty to eighteen and nine, and then went from from eighteen and nine to sixteen and twelve in year three. Um, that was probably the best experience and worst experience all wrapped up into one. Um, the worst experience from my standpoint, because after eight years of being a head coach, I could, I could evaluate the year and say that we underachieved. And, and I was a big part of that uh, because I'm the head coach. And so it, it, it was able to, I was able to reflect on some of the challenges that came along with that year. And uh, just as much as momentum has been our best friend this year, that year, momentum was our worst enemy. And, I, you know, I'd never been a part of it before, probably never will since, or, or hopefully never uh, will in the future. We had three back-to-back games on the road where we la- lost on a last-second buzzer beat. And th- if it happens once, it's demoralized. And if it happens twice, you'll probably never see it again. If it happens three times, it's like, what do you do? And so it happened three times to us. And so we went 16-12. and 12. I felt like we underachieved that season. Um, but it was a great learning experience, and it was a great foundation to reevaluate our priorities and what we needed to do for this year. And so as bad as it was that year, it has really springboarded us into the success we've had up to this point. Mark, when you finish that season at 16 and 12 and you, you take a step back and you meet with your staff and you, you're ready to get into the offseason, how exactly do you examine your specific performance, you you personally as the head coach? Because you said yourself that you underachieved. H- has it gotten easier for you to recognize sort of some of the things that maybe you didn't do as well as you could or some of the things that you need to change moving forward uh, with the next season? Yeah, well, I think I think it's, it's only human nature to mature as year goes on. And uh, as you develop and you grow um, as a coach and you get a little bit older, you understand a little bit, not only who you are, but the people around you and you kind of understand your identity. So as you get older, you're, you're growing, no matter you turn 30, turn 40, turn 50, turn 60, you're always in a position where you want to learn, you want to grow. And so, so to answer your question, I I do think it was a little bit easier for me to have some self-awareness and to say, Hey, you know what? You know, you didn't do as well as you should have this year. And that's a hard pill to swallow. And so I, I, I met with the players. We had, um, we had honest, authentic conversations. Um, I met with the staff and I did a lot of soul searching on what can we do to get better. And, and, you know, I think at the end of the day, the result has really uh, helped us out with this year. You know, I, I look back and I'd say, you know, we didn't, we haven't spent any more time this year 
than we did last year. I put probably just as much, if not more time into the occupation last year, but it was in different areas. Um, and so the result that I, I feel like we, we came to was that we have put more times in a relationship this year than we did in a strategy. Last year, it was, hey, we're going to put more time and energy. We're going to grind it out. We're going to stay late. We're going we're gonna to X's and O's this thing to death, guys. When we go into to Wednesday's game or Saturday's game, you're going to be fully prepared. Well, we put a lot of time into that, that area, and it was good, and that's not something that's forgotten for this year. But I think we kind of lost sight of some other areas that were just as important, if not more important, and that's relationships. That's like super interesting because in your background, obviously five years at, at Lewisburg and you're talking about turning your roster over, X's and O's at the junior college level is probably a huge advantage over other coaches if you're just a better X's and O's coach, but you don't have to focus so much on relationships because your job is to get those guys in and then you know get them moved on to a, you know, a four-year program, right? 100%. I think that if your foundation is built on uh, discipline and execution of X's and O's, that's going to get you pretty far at the junior college level because you don't necessarily see as much of that um, at that level. Now, when you get to the four-year level, <laughs> you, ain't, you ain't out coaching many people. I mean, you, <laughs> you can be pretty good, but I'm telling you, there's a lot of great coaches. And so you, you've got you've to be good and wear a lot of different hats in a lot of different areas. And, and relationships was something that kind of got lost. And and it was it was something that I had to uh, to come to grips with that I didn't do a great job of. It wasn't like I ignored it altogether. It was just that we put way more time into an area that that uh, was important. But but motivation um, is is such a central aspect of success um, at the four year at any level, to that matter. But um, it was for us, and that's something that we've we've done a lot better job of this year. When when did you know? that like Aiken was going to be the job for you. Had you applied for other jobs while you were coaching at Lewisburg over that five-year period of time? And, and, and what was kind of the tipping point on Aiken? You know, obviously it's a great program. It had been to the final four. Yeah. I think they went in 13, 14 to the final four. So you knew you could have success, but when did it feel like this was the correct job? You know, I, probably after year three is when I really started looking for jobs at, after Lewisburg because I really wanted to make my mark. You know, I left as an assistant at 30 years old. I, I knew exactly what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. I got the job at Lewisburg at 30, um, was able to be successful in year one. But, hey, at the end of the day, a lot of people have that, well, they weren't his players. And, okay, he did a good job with what he had, um, but but what can he do with guys that he needs to bring in? So there was. There was a challenging aspect of, hey, can I take a junior college recruiting class and let's see how far and, and what we can do with it. And so we brought in a, a brand new crop of guys in year two. We were successful. Uh, but really, it was year three where I wanted to see how far we could take this thing. And we did. We, we went 35-2. and two. Unfortunately, we got upset in NJCA National Tournament. But I felt, um, I felt like, you know, we had accomplished something. And so at that point, I was, I was ready to look. Uh, but I didn't, it wasn't like, Hey, you know what? I, I'm looking for a job. And all of a sudden I get a job, you know, I mean, it, it takes time and energy. And a part of getting uh, jobs is I didn't, I wasn't very good at it at that time. And I've realized how important it is, but you got to be good at the interview process. And um, I stunk in year one, you know, when I, when I got the job at Lewisburg, I was in a sole one-on-one meeting, uh, which at that time I was, I was better at, but when you go for, for jobs at, at the four year level, you're more than likely going to be interviewing in front of a committee. 
And I interviewed in front of a couple of committees. I wanted the jobs that I was going for and I stunk and I wasn't very good, but like anything else, you mature and you grow and you adapt and you get a little bit better each time. And um, I'm glad I stunk in year one because year two came and I look back and reflect, I would much rather be in a position I'm at right now here at USC Aiken versus the positions I was going for before. I want to talk a little bit about USC Aiken, if Tyler, if that's okay. UC Aiken's unique in that, you know, they're a fairly successful program that you came into. It's not like we, we talk to a lot of different coaches. They're coming in situations. Arcadia is a great example, right? We talked to Justin Scott, 94-95 was their last 18-win season. And now he has them at 20 wins this year and so on and so forth. But how was it different in terms of pressure for you to come into USC Aiken and be like, I've got to get my guys in and we got to start winning games, especially if the first six and 20 season. Mm-hmm. So, so to sit here and say that the pressure wasn't there, I'd be lying to you. I mean, I think that um, how you handle that pressure is more important than understanding it's there. Um, you know, it was something that, that was a part of, you know, where we were and where we've come to. And so the, the, the year before, the two years before I got the job here, the former coach had, had gone to the Final Four with, with the program, had its most successful season up to that point um, in history. And so, um, yeah, you, you do have a little bit of that pressure. There is a little bit of anxiety to make sure that you perform. But at the end of the day, when you look back, you just got to say, hey, I can, I can only control what I can control. And I'm going to do the best job of what we can. And we're just going to take it day by day, stay in the present, not worry about what they've done and, and be who we are. And if we can, we can create our own identity, create our own culture, we're going to be who we are and we'll have our own success. And so, yeah, there was some pressure in the beginning, but I think how you handle it is so much more important than anything else. Yeah. And you're obviously a very good recruiter. I mean, you're building a program that's, you know, so successful this year, especially you guys are 22 and two. I think I read you were seventh ranked in the country, maybe even higher now. Recruiting wise, how do you approach that? And how did you kind of going to USC, aching guns a blazing, figuring out who to target and bringing in kids at the JUCO and high school level? Man, that's a great question because that was that was such an important piece for us when, when I first got the job is what is our recruiting strategy going to be? You know, you have to. I think it's yeah, different have, everywhere, too. Oh, it's, you it's know what I mean? Everywhere. Like if you're Absolutely. in Philly, it's different than it is in South Carolina. It's different in California. There's schools. The dynamics are so different. But I'll let you speak on that. No question. I mean, for for us, you know, just as important it is to have your identity on the court is just as important to have your identity recruiting. Um, And who are you going to recruit? How are you going to recruit? When you're going to recruit? All those things come into play. And and so for us at USD Aiken, I had to first evaluate who we were, um, the resources that we had, what we could sell, um, because that's really going to change the landscape of your locker room. You know, for us, we have a, an unbelievable facility. Okay, we have challenging resources from a you know from a budgetary standpoint, and sometimes even from a scholarship standpoint. But one of the things that we really did have was an unbelievable facility. Okay, and when you're recruiting, um, most kids look for three things. Most um, they're looking for academics, uh, they're looking for facilities, they're looking for future, which means can can you play pro after your time there. And they're looking for finances. So um, really, the three the three F's is what 
a lot of the, the kids that we were looking for, future facilities and finances, okay, along with academics for a, a freshman. But we wanted to take the resource that we had of the facility um, and we wanted to say to ourselves, okay, how can we separate ourselves from the rest of the conference, from the rest of the country, from the rest of the people in the region? Okay, other teams might have better resources. From a budgetary standpoint, they might have better scholarship, but we have the facility. So what I ended up doing was saying, okay, who, you know, who is the best person to market that to? And for us, it was, it was division one transfers. We really wanted to attack the division one transfer because, you know, we were on an even playing field with a lot of kids at a high school, you know, at a high school, if you get recruited by five division one player or five division two schools, and one division one school, well, at the end of the day, 99% chance, there's no way you're going to get that, that kid because he's going to go division one. Um, that's just the nature of the beast. And so we needed to get division one athletes to be competitive at the national level. And so we said, okay, yeah, we don't want to forget the high school kid and we're going to continue to recruit them because they need to diversify your locker room. Uh, they need to give you stability over the course of four years. But we really wanted to attack the transfer. Um, because we could, you know, when we get into a battle, a recruiting battle with three other Division II schools and that Division I transfer is not going to Division One. He's already decided I'm going to a Division II school because 70 percent of transfers in, in, across the landscape of Division One players go back to Division Two. And so out of those 70 percent, if we're going to get in a recruiting battle with five other Division II schools, we felt like we had the competitive edge. Um, we felt like those were the type of kids that we could go after. And so that's what we did. And that's who we attacked. And, and that's who we, uh, we sold ourselves to. Um, and, and it's worked. And again, I think a diversified locker room is so important. Um, I think you need a mix of, of athletic, talented transfers. But I also think for us, you have to have the stability of, of somebody that's been there for four years that has ownership in the program, because there's good and bad that come with a junior college transfer, division one transfer, and even a high school, high school, you know, uh, recruit, there's good and bad in all three of those areas. And you just have to recognize it, implement it within your locker room and, um, you know, try to make sure it messes over the course of your tenure. Is that, is the 70% division two transfer rate? I, I guess like that's a, a very high number Mark, do you think that's kids ending up transferring to a level that's correct for them or kids who maybe want to go and have a bigger role? Like, why do you think that number is so high? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. I think the, the number is probably it's high. There's over 750 and 800, 750 to 800 transfers a year over the course of the last four to five years. And so if 70 percent of those 800 are going to go Division two. Why is the reason? I think the primary reason is probably because those kids, you know, overshot their wad at a high school and they want it. They're D1 or bust. I mean, they're going division one, you know, hell or high water. It doesn't matter the fit. It doesn't matter how happy. And then when they go division one and they don't play, they say to themselves, okay, is this really worth it? You know, am I going to achieve my long-term objectives by, by playing and being happy and having the opportunity to play professionally? at this school? And the answer is no. You know, they can sit the bench for three, year three and year four um, and say they graduated from a division one school or they can transfer to a division two school, have a great career um, and have an opportunity to play professionally afterwards. And so I think that's probably the major reason. 
Yeah, there's always a, a light at the end of the tunnel. And, you know, I've talked about this. I'm a Division two guy. I, I coached at Philly U, and the, the pitch was kind of always, you know, you recruit those kids lightly in high school, and then you almost have a sense that they're going above, you know, where they can play. And then they get over-recruited, and they're unhappy, and they give you a call. But you have so much success with players coming. One, for example, my level, Pete Alexis comes after Penn State. He gets to play four years at Philly U, scores over 2,200 points, 1,000 rebounds. Division two, it's super competitive basketball. And it's, you know, you take that talent and you can really thrive at that level and you can play basketball after. Whereas a lot of times you're me sitting on a bench at the Division one schools kind of over recruiting you. So I appreciate that. Um, In terms of recruiting, just from my perspective, are you. Is that how you're kind of structuring yourself? You're taking a lot of, uh, you're trying to recruit as many high school kids as possible, but really focus on the next class. It's going to be that transfer and the junior colleges. Yeah, well, so so you're plugging holes with transfers, right? But those transfers are are helping your program be successful. And so when, when you bring in the transfer, there, okay, the good and the bad. All right, when when you get it, when you get a transfer from a Division One school, okay, the cons are there's less ownership, okay, because they're probably on, only with you for one year, two years. Okay, not saying there's no ownership, but there's less because it's it's only human nature to be invested into something the longer and harder you work at something. So if you're there for four years, you're gonna have more ownership. If you're there for one or two years, you're gonna have a little less. So the cons are there's a little less ownership into the program. Okay. The cons are from a division one program are that they're a little bit more coddled. You know, they've, they've, they've had the luxurious life. They've had um, everything kind of given to them throughout the course of, of their AAU and their high school. They've been told they haven't been told no very often. So you're a lot of the times you get a prima donna. I mean, and so when you bring in somebody to, to, to play on your team, they better be somebody that's good enough to start because if they're not good enough to start, then they're probably going to, disrupt your locker room a little bit okay the the pros to it is obvious the obvious factors you're getting somebody that's probably more talented um than a lot of the other players in your program you're getting somebody that's been well coached i mean out of all the coaches at the division one level there's i i can't even think of a handful that i would say aren't a good coach they do a great job um and so you're getting a, a kid that that has been well coached Junior college, a little bit different story. You're getting a kid that eh, maybe he's been good, well coached, but not as well coached as a Division One school. But you're also getting a kid that thinks, "Man, I just made it to the mountaintop by playing Division Two. Division One, sometimes they take a step back and say, "Well, I'm gonna kill it," you know. And if you get too many of those guys, it really, uh, it really disrupts your locker room, like I mentioned. So there's good and there's bad in both. Um, and the four year kid. A lot of times as a freshman, they're just probably not good enough to play in year one. Um, if they are, that's a rare breed. But by year three and year four, man, you've got you've got a whole lot more ownership. You've got a you've got a whole lot more development. And it really meshes with a little bit of everything. Now, I'll say this. If I was at a different school that didn't have the facilities that we had, I probably would I probably would be going straight for a year. Okay. Um, because we wouldn't have the amenities to attract that transfer. But here I've got to find something that separates us from the rest of the pack. And that's, that's kind of why we took that strategy. Guys got to take a quick break and coaches. Do I have a special treat for you? 
It's time to get your fitness on with the nation's premier personal trainer and wellness coach, Ben Greenfield, each week on Ben Greenfield Fitness here on Podcast One. Need more fitness advice like most of us? Join Ben this week as he meets up with podcast legend Adam Carolla on The Adam Carolla Show. Download Ben Greenfield Fitness every Wednesday and don't miss Ben on The Adam Carolla Show on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Every car comes with its share of stories. That ding in your bumper when you nervously picked up a first date, the luxury package you got after a big promotion, or the mileage you saved by riding your bike all summer. While you can't put a price tag on your stories, now with True Car, you can at least find out what your car's worth when it's time to sell or trade it in. Just go to True Car, simply enter your license plate number, and watch how your car's details pop up. Then answer a few questions. Navigation and moonroof? Watch as they bump up your value. High mileage? You already knew it was going to cost you, but now you know how much dings your wallet so you can plan ahead. Once you're finished, you'll get a true cash offer sent in minutes, which you can take to a local certified dealer to cash out or trade in. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out TrueCard today. True cash offer, not available in all areas. And now, back to Mark Vanderslice. Has the competition of the Peach Belt helped you as well? I mean, you have four teams. If we count Nova Southeastern, who I think is an affiliate member, if I was doing enough research on this, you have four teams ranked in the top 25 right now of Division Two. Has that been something you've been able to sell to recruits? Like, you're going to come here and you're going to play against really good players, and like you're not going to get nights off. You're going to get noticed. Has that been a big help? Yeah, it helps. It, it's I would say I would say it goes back to the three F's again when it comes to recruiting. They obviously want to see the success that you've had. And for us right now, a big sell for the current recruits. Yeah. OK, is is we're going to market that we're seventh in the country. We're 22 and two and we're on our way to hopefully have one of the better seasons that the, the schools had. And so that's important. Um, they probably look a little less at the competition of the conference. They're really looking at what they can get at that particular institution. So again, the, the three F's would be finances. You know, are, are they going to be on full scholarship? Or are they going to be able to, to to receive their Pell Grant, which is another thing that separates you from a lot of other schools? Yeah, it's a it's a big deal. When when Smalls and I were at Temple, that that came up a ton. Like if you were going to get full Pell, because it's a lot of money, you know. Yeah, and that, there's there's only a small niche of schools that allow that, and the Peach Belt and USC Aiken is is one of those conferences and schools that allow that to happen. So. We, we take full advantage of it. And so the financial part of the piece has allowed us uh, to recruit um, a certain pool of, of guys. And the second, again, is the, uh, the facilities. And the third is, is the future. You know, we really, we really market the fact that over the course of the last nine, 10 years, we've put 24, 25 professionals um, at the next level. And so we really tell those guys, hey, listen, if, if one of your goals is to play professionally, Man, look no further than USC Aiken because we've put 25 of them in the last 10 years. And why is that? And then we go, boom, X, Y, Z, this is here, this is why. And uh, we, we go from there. We've talked a little bit about your background in junior college, but you also, prior to Lewisburg, you, you were at assistant at Toledo and at Furman. I know you were at Furman in an administrative role a little bit as well. But how, have you, how do you think you've changed and adapted from going from Division One? And, and we talked about this before we were recording. You know, when you're a young guy, it's like D1 or bust all the way. Like, let's do it. But now, as you're older and as you have a family and, you're, you know, you're in your ninth year as a head coach, what do you, what do you think is something you would, you would want to tell yourself when you're a Division One staffer? 
I would say, you know, at the, as, at the division one level, you're a specialist, right? I mean, there's, there's way more resources. Uh, everybody is a specialist. So, you know, a head coach comes in, they, they want a recruiter on their staff. A head coach comes in, they want somebody that can call, hold the fort down with X's and O's and, 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 and be, a, be a coach that's been in the head coaching role before. They want a guy that's an administrative guy. They want a director of basketball operations. Shoot, if you go down and you look at the Power Five schools, you literally can find some schools that have 20 staff members affiliated with that program. I mean, literally, you've got three assistants, one head coach. You've got a special, assi- a special assistant to a head coach. What is that? That's just basically hiring somebody. I can't remember who I was. I can't remember who I was looking at the other day. Might have been. It might have been Indiana. And they're, they're like staff thing. And it's fine. Like they're, you know, Indiana, they got a huge budget. It's a blue blood program, I guess. Like, and they, they had multiple like titles that I had never seen before. Like never. Yeah. They're, they're invented. They're invented. I mean, they're special assistant, special assistant to the assistant, three <laughs> managers, three D ops, assistant video coordinator. I mean, there's literally 20 staff members. So you're a specialist in what you do and you have to do it well at that level. When you go for me, I had to, I went from division one where I had to specialize in certain areas, you know, as an assistant coach. But then when you go to junior college, which is what I did from Furman to junior, you have to wear all hats. You, you've got to be, you've got to be great in all areas to be successful. And you've got to be humble enough to accept those positions. Because when you go into a junior college, you know, position, you are the marketer. You are the assistant coach. You sweep the floor. You're hiring the guy to do the shot clock before the game, for God's sakes. You know, there's so many different things that you got to be very good at. Um, and so I left the Division One ranks. And by the age of 30, after I left Furman, I, I, you know what? I, I wanted to be a Division One head coach, but I wanted to be a head coach worse than I wanted to be a Division One head coach. And so my time was right. And so when I was presented with the opportunity of Lewisburg, I took a crack at it and it's, it's been great for me. I mean, I've, I've learned a ton, but, you know, I would say, I would say when you go from an assistant role to a head coaching role, be prepared. You know, again, you're a specialist, but when you become a head coach, you're not a specialist anymore. You've got to wear many different hats and you've got to make that transition from the one or two good things that you're, that, that you're very good at to being very good at a lot of different areas. And so I wanted to really equip myself and prepare myself to be in that spot. And I felt like I was. Um, and when that time came, you know, it's, it's like anything else, man. It's like when you, when you meet that girl, your dreams, man, you, you know, you know, she's the one. And so for me, I knew at that age, it, man, it's time, it's ready. And so I was starting to equip myself to be a head coach and I was getting ready for how I want to be a head coach, how I was going to hire what strategy I was going to have on the court, my identity, how we were going to play defense, offense, and so forth. But um, it's been an adventure, that's for sure. Yeah, and speaking about, you know, staff construction and everything that kind of goes into that, how do you organize, not only organize your staff, but help them grow as they want to eventually excel in their careers as well? I think, I think the one word that all coaches – all assistants, any staff member, any player really needs to put, make a mental note of and to put in their hip pocket is to serve. I, I think that you, it's easy to get caught, get caught up in me, 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 me. 
Um, and you, you want to be in a position to always serve those around you because it's a village and, and there's no such thing as a self-made man. Everybody needs to be in a position to serve one another. And there's, there's different windows of times where I think you can get caught up into you and, and what, what you're trying to accomplish and what you want to do. But when you don't lose sight of helping other people, in this case, assisting coaches, um, you can, you can become very myopic. And when you become myopic, you become self-centered and, and then all of a sudden things just don't seem to be as organized. And so for us, um, you know, here at, at USC Aiken, uh, you know, different from Division One is you have three assistants. Here you really only have one assistant. So it is a little bit different. And you can put a little bit more focus into those one, maybe two guys that are on your staff. But for, uh, for, for what I've done is, is, is I want to serve my assistant coach. I want to make sure that he grows and he gets better, but I also want to communicate at a high level of what his purpose is within our program. I want him to know his central function. I want him to know what his role is. And so anytime an assistant coach becomes a part of my staff, uh, the first day on the job, I, I give him a flow chart. You know, here's actually, no, I take that back. Rewind. When you come on your interview, I give you the flow chart and I tell you, this is what you're in charge of. This is what your role is. This is how much you're going to get paid. And my friend, this is how hard you're going to work. And if you're not willing to put in this time for what you see here on this page, it's not going to be worth it. And so I can eliminate a lot of people that I don't think are a good fit for our program based on my communication and the, the recruiting of the assistant process. And so I, I'm able to communicate that. I give them the flow chart. I tell them what, what the responsibilities are. And on day one, we hit the ground running. But in the meantime, man, I want to help that guy. I want to put him in a position to not only grow and be prepared as a head coach, but to show him the ropes, to help him network, and to help him learn from some of the mistakes or even you know from some of the successes that I've had along the way as well. Yeah, in terms of mistakes, mistakes and challenges, I guess, what are the toughest challenges and maybe mistakes in your career? And how did you kind of overcome that adversity? Well, I'll tell you what, I'm a work in progress, my man. A yeah, work in aren't progress. we all? <laughs> I'd say one of my one of my toughest challenges in the work in progress that I've had is I have my I've founded my identity on being a grinder. Okay. At the division one level I coached eight years. And so that's all I knew. As a single guy trying to make his way into the business, I was a grinder. I was gonna work harder than I was gonna work three times harder than you to get my foot in the door. So that was an identity that I had um, going throughout the profession. Well, guess what? Life happens. You get married. You have kids. And so it's tough to branch off from your identity, which was for me, like I said, was a grinder. And so when I, my biggest challenge is constantly juggling the priorities of the profession. And, you know, for me, it's, it's God, it's family, it's occupation in my work. But a lot of the times that's just word, not actions. And it needs to be actions just as much words. And so therefore I'm constantly juggling and prioritizing um, those three aspects of my life. And a lot of times occupation um, through my action shows up as number one. And and that's a challenge for me. That's, that's something I have to look at myself in the mirror and say, Hey man, I get to get better at this because um, there are other things in life than just basketball. Um, This is, As as crazy as that might sound for somebody that's in the occupation, um, there is. And so that I would say that's probably my biggest challenge is constantly juggling the priorities that come with the profession um, and being successful in all of them, you know, not just one or not just two, but being successful in all three. 
One last question from us before we go to segments. Uh, we, we talked a little bit about, you know, your, your goals, but ultimately you're having a lot of success right here. What, what are your current goals? And then how are you long-term? Are you still setting more long-term goals or they're mostly short-term season-based goals at this point in your career? I think it's important to have a little bit of both. You know, I think that long term is important, but I also think that short term is important as well. I, I was very fortunate at early age. I had a dad that, um, you know, introduced me to a lot of the the old school, the old school motivational speakers, the Norman Vincent appeals, the Zig Ziglar. So I was able to 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 be able to identify both. And I think for me at this point in my career, um, staying in the present is probably the most important thing mm-hmm. uh, because it's hard. You know, you don't worry about the future. Don't be concerned about the past. Be really good at where you're at right now and stay in the present. Everything's going to take care of itself. You know, while, while I'm here at USC Aiken, you know, a long-term objective that I, that I, I try to translate with the players and the staff is, is yeah, let's, let's, let's try to reach the Final Four. And that is an objective um, as a program that we're trying to achieve is to make it to the Final Four. Because I think if you don't have a long-term objective, you're a wandering generality, right? If you don't know where you want to go, you don't know how to get there. And so even though we don't harp on the long-term objective, you know, with, with me and our program, I still want to know where we're going. And so um, I would say trying to make it to the final four would be a, man, that would, that would be an awesome achievement, not only for me, but our program and our guys. Uh, that would probably be number one at this point. Okay. Awesome. Uh, let's go into coach speak. So just two quotes here from college coaches and you're going to help us break them down. Small's got the first one from Tom Izzo. All right. I hope everybody here feels bad for Nick, but I don't want anybody to feel bad for us. We're going to have to adjust this team. There's no doubt our margin for error has shrunk. This is Tom Ezzo, obviously, on Nick Ward being done for the year. And injuries are such a huge part of college basketball coaching. I don't care what level you are, the middle school all the way up to the pro level. How do you handle injuries as they happen throughout the year? Is there a specific way you handle that internally with the team and then outwardly? Well, let's, let's, you're, you're hundred percent right, man. It's difficult. My year three, when I was at Lewisburg, I had never really been a part of a program that had a, a major setback or an injury. Um, we were, we just came off of, uh, no, it was actually year four. So we just come off of a 35 and two record. Um, I think we were ranked top five in the country at that, that point. And our best player was averaging 22 and 12 and we were on track to probably being um a national contender and if 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 we had won at that level he was probably going to be in contention for national player of the year he tore his acl mcl and his meniscus in one fell swoop over a christmas practice and yeah right away i mean your first initial reaction is just shock you're like jim are you freaking kidding me that's like this is unbelievable but um the guys around the injured player as much as the injured player um, need your presence as much as, because, because you're just as shocked and just as down as players are. I mean, come on, let's be real. You know I mean? It, it hurts. It hurts everybody in the program, but there's, it's not, you can't control it, you know, and, and it stinks and it does hurt your program to some degree, but you've got to figure out a way to motivate the people around that situation, know how to plug holes. Um, as hard as it is, you know, we had to plug that hole. Um, we changed we changed what we did and how we did it because we played a two post lineup at that point. He was a four man, and we had to to make a transition to a four guard lineup, single post lineup, 
at Christmas break. Um, a little bit of magic at the beginning of the year. Um, by the end of the year, um, his absence kind of showed up. But yeah, it's it's just a, it's a tough one. To, it's a tough one to handle because some of these programs around the country uh, they get two and three injury injuries, and boy, you know how they handle that is really going to dictate you know the success of that year. And, I mean, and, and this quote, I, I like it because it's Tom Izzo, but like Tom Izzo's not losing his job when his best player gets hurt, and and he doesn't, you know what I mean? Like he has a much, you know, but uh, but around the country, like that legitimately happens. Like people have injuries, they can't really control kind of the outcome of the season, and it ends up costing your job. So I always think that it's like what do coaches do? Like, how do you remain in the moment? You know, Mark, that's kind of why I picked this one. Cause it's like, you, you can panic, but there's nothing you can do about it. You know? Well, it's interesting. Tom Izzo has just as much equity in the profession as, as any other coach in, in the sport. So, so he has a, uh, you know, he has a little bit of a buffer when somebody gets injured and they have a bad year. You know, I know it, there's a lot of pressure at the highest level, but I mean, he's, he's one of the greatest coaches in the game. But there's a lot of coaches that they're on year four or year five of their of their contract. And if they don't win, they're done. You know, there, there's no when you look when you look at the schedule online and you look at the win loss column, there's not an asterisk at the bottom of the page that says, well, Jimmy and John got hurt. So we're going to give him a break. No, nah, man. Bottom line is it's the W's and the L's. And and regardless of how you get there. Um, that's what people look at. And so, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tough pill to swallow. I, I think it really, you know, I think that, that there's a science and an art um, to how a coach can handle that and the pressures that come along with it. You know, how, how are you going to motivate your players? And you've got to be willing to adjust and to adapt. And if you're rigid and you're, you're set in your ways, man, you're, you're going to have a tough time coming back from that injury. You, you've got to be able to adjust. That's going to be a, a key um, to revolving around an injury is adjustment uh, because it is. Year four, year five is a dangerous year for a team that, that hasn't made the NCAA tournament up to that point, um, especially for a low major, even a mid-major. Um, and if that injury takes place and you lose, sayonara. No, yeah, and that, and that is exactly what I thought. And then I, I picked this next one. It's it's one of my favorite ones I've ever seen, just because Mike Hopkins gives us some like unbelievable like coach speak in this one. But it, it fits kind of with you guys because you're 22 and two, and you know the battle of staying level headed is is a regular thing. I'm sure you fight. But Mike Hopkins said you put out mouse traps. Don't eat the cheese. We've done a lot to try to keep them grounded. I think they've done a good job of that. I wasn't really happy with how we played. This was after they they beat Washington State in like a close game. I was happy with one, but I'm trying to coach the next play and trying to be the best team we can be. So there's a lot of areas of improvement for that. So, Mark, what uh, what types of mousetraps are you setting for your team heading into the final stretch of the season? Well, I think that the mousetrap that we're setting for our players is to get them to recognize how important energy is. Um, energy is is important throughout the course of the year, but it's it's vitally important down the home stretch. And what I mean by that is staying in the present. I mentioned that earlier is that you can't have your energy be divided. And how you don't divide your energy is stay in the present. Um, Again, don't think about the past. Don't worry about the future because that's going to divide the energy that's most important right now, which is the game, the possession and the play that's right in front of you. And if if you can't if you can't stay in that present, then you're going to have a tough time with distractions. You're going to have a tough time. Um, with 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 what what players are thinking uh, outside of the moment, and so for us, as I said, the mousetrap for us is to 
um, to get the guys to believe in the present more than anything else. And I think that that if you divide your energy, it's it's just like, you know, a lot of coaches will talk about how important legs are at the end of the year. Well, that's the physical energy part of it. And that's important. But the mental and the psychological aspect of it is is just as vital. Um, and if you can't get guys to think about right here and right now, um, you're you could you could have the potential to to drop that game that uh, you should have won, or you know not be in the game that that you think you uh, have a chance at. So I would say my mousetrap right now with our guys is to stay in the present and don't divide our energy. I love that. I love I love the mousetrap thing. And don't <laughs> eating the cheese. It's, it's the best. Like, it's it's it's, it's <laughs> perfect. It, it's like when I see quotes like this, and I favorited this one on Twitter when I saw it. I was like, all right, I'm going to use it. it it's going to come up at a good moment. But it's like, did Mike Hopkins like come up with this in his house? Like he was trying to catch a mouse or something I in his do, office, right? you know? And he's like, I got to use this. It's yeah. great. How many times do you think of something unique when you're alone in the shower? You're just sitting there, yeah, all up plagued on, on uh, uh, you know glass in your shower and you come up with some quote i'll tell you i took a good quote that i've used a lot this year and it's so um it's been it's it's been something that i've told our uh, our staff uh, quite a few times as, as i stole from nick saban and he said you know compliments are like rat poison and it's so true you know every, every everybody's different but if you compliment somebody too much it's like rat poison you're gonna kill them you know don't boost their head you know that's that's that uh, that's that cheese on that mousetrap. It's like you know they need to have confidence, but you give them too much compliments, and boom. I, I think I remember that because Saban had like a three or four week period of time where he just like crapped on the media in every one of his <laughs> press conferences for like like building his, and then ultimately got crushed by Clemson in the national championship. So you got to think about Saban for a second, and maybe he's maybe he's onto it. You know, like maybe he. He knows what he's doing, obviously, but it was funny. He had like four straight weeks of just like shitting on the media for being too good to his team. <laughs> well, it's so true because when you're when you're when you're successful as he's been, you're trying to find out what makes these guys tick, and and you've got to get them ready for that next game. And if they're if their heads in the clouds, if they're boosted, uh, you know, it's so easy to get complacent. Um, and he's just trying to figure out ways to make sure that they give their best uh, each game, and so. I found that to be pretty productive, and I've limited my compliments. I can tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So hopefully a lot of compliments in our next seg- segment, which is the city review. So me and Tyler are coming down, but I'm going to throw a little twist, a fun twist. We're bringing Dutch and Distant, your cousins, down. We're going to have a serious weekend in Aiken, South Carolina. Uh, I'm sure Distant will be excited about it. We've got three restaurants, two bars, night spots, and an activity to do in Aiken. What are we doing, Mark? All right, man. Are you a, a, a chicken and cheese guy or are you a fine dining guy? It really depends on where I'm, you're at. I'm, I'm, listen, we're both, but like, let's go chicken and cheese because I love chicken and cheese, man. Okay. Well, like I said, you're, you're talking to somebody that's super pumped to be in a city of 75,000. Okay. I went from Lewisburg, city of 4,000, to the booming metropolitan of Aiken. So, Anything on the strip that incorporates anything outside of Hardee's or Burger King is up my alley. <laughs> uh, man, when we got cookout six months ago, that was a thing, man. That place was packed at Aiken. So I'm going to say for for lunch, when we pass by a uh, cookout, we're going to grab some uh, some good chili cheese fries and some uh, some good hamburgers, chicken sandwiches. Um I'll say, you know what, you guys come on down. I'm not letting you eat at McDonald's. We're we're gonna we're gonna go to a fine dining restaurant. Um, you know, as a volunteer assistant for two years, I used to be all about the burgers. 
But boy, I married up. Thank the Lord. And she has introduced me to some good food. All right. So we're going to go to fine dining at Wilcox. Uh, Wilcox is a, is a nice four to five star restaurant here in the area. Um, man, you know what I'm going to do? What are you going to do? Starting Falls, man. I, you know, before we go to uh, the bars um, Sunday night, we're going to hit up church. Okay. Can you do that with me, Dutch, D.C.? Yeah. We're church. That's we, we love do, church. Man. That's what we do. <laughs> Gately's, you know, Sunday morning, we roll in. We get there a little late, but we still go to church, and then we get Mac and Mancos after. It's a big reward. Get Mac and Mancos, go to Mellow Mushroom, and we'll, we'll hit up a local bar. I'm not I'm not a bar connoisseur, but there are a couple around here, man. There, no judgment, you know, no judgment at all. You guys have at it. <laughs> I love it. What uh? Love what's it. the one activity we have to do if we're coming? Church, in? We're coming right? in. The, we're coming in the off season. Does church, church count as an activity? Oh man, um, tough. yeah, I'd say it would. <laughs> yeah, we got we. That's that's a that's a Sunday must, man. <laughs> so you come down on the weekend. You're going to hit up church on Sunday, but if you if you come out Friday and Saturday. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, man. It's there's limited options in Aiken. We're gonna have to switch over to Augusta if uh, we're gonna do something um, special, go to a concert or something. Go, like that. go, you go play golf, maybe not Augusta National, but they got some other courses out there. You know, <laughs> you know what? Yeah, you no, know, I will say this. You know, Aiken is known for um, its its horses and its golf. Honestly, that's yeah, that's what we're that's what Aiken's known for is it's an equestrian uh, town and it's golf. So we got Sage Valley. In the Augusta National here about 45 minutes away. So um, if you're into golf, man, I got we, we got the place for you. That's for sure. All right, cool. Let's do 10 touches, 30-second rapid fire. I got the first five. Uh, who's the funniest person you've ever worked with or you've ever coached with? Ooh, that's collective. I'll say this. As a coach, one of, uh, one of the, the, the most fun parts of my job is the pregame meals. I love pregame meals because I sit back and I laugh at all the players. They joke on each other. They harass each other. They say things that I can't even repeat on this podcast. But all I can do is sit back and laugh. So I can't really say one specific individual. I would say collectively uh, a team pregame meal is probably the, the most fun that I have when it comes to laughing. Okay. Uh, you've, uh, you've worked at a lot of levels of college basketball. What's your worst travel experience as a basketball coach? Ooh, um, you know what? I shouldn't even had to have thought that long. I can tell you right now what it is. So when I was at Toledo, um, my, we, we played in a sun, I think it was called the sunshine tournament, which was down at UTEP. Okay. Now you, if, if you've ever been down in that area, UTEP is right on the border of Mexico. Okay. So we flew down to UTEP. Um, there were four teams. It was kind of a, a round robin tournament. Uh, we played the first game. And then as an activity before game two, which was two nights later, we went and crossed the border as a, as a team. And we, we, you know, we ate some Mexican food, did whatever. And boy, I got the worst food poisoning. Oh no! I, Montezuma's Revenge. God help you if you've you've ever even had it or even heard of it. But uh, I got Montezuma's Revenge. I had the UTEP scout the next day. Oh man! Um, I'll tell you what that maid in that hospital in, in that hotel earned her keep <laughs> that night. I'm telling you, what, it was I was all over the place. Couldn't sleep. It was the worst road trip ever. Um, we didn't win the game. So the coach was pissed at me. Didn't have a good scout because I couldn't even think straight. Uh, yeah, that, that has to be hands down 
getting Montezuma's revenge and having that three days removed, even from the game, was probably the worst travel trip. What uh, you and you, when you and your wife have some time, what what TV shows are you binge watching? Oh, that's that's easy too. Big Brother, Big Brother, Big really? Brother. You guys ever watched like it? That. Yeah, Big Brother's our thing. That's kind of our. Uh, our, our couples escape in front of the TV. Um, yeah, we'll we'll watch Big Brother, Big Brother Celebrity. Anytime it comes on, man, we get so pumped. They have a good lineup. Yes. Celebrity Big Brother has a really good lineup. They got like Anthony Scaramucci. They got like a bunch of people that are like really famous on this season. I'm, st- I'm, I'm still I'm still dazzled at what happened to uh, happened to Aramucci. What what happened to him? He just left. I have no idea where he went. I think he was. I'm, I'm telling you, that's never happened. I guess, you know, where they had um, what Amarosa on, on the, the season before, and maybe she disclosed too much information about the uh, Trump regime, and, and then he comes on. <laughs> he just disappeared. Yeah, he did. He disappeared if you follow that show. So, yeah, Tom Green's my man. Yeah, I've been following, pumped up for him. There we go. Uh, you, got, you come from a coaching family. There, there's no really other way to, to put it, basketball family. But if you weren't working in sports, what would you be doing? Um, something, a combination of probably competitiveness and kids, you know, something where I'm dealing with kids and, and dealing with people, but there's gotta be something competitive involved as well. Um, what that is, I don't know because I was so die hard into to basketball. Um, man, if it was sports, if, if I was removed from sports, holy cow, I don't know. Um, via. <laughs> Be a stay-at-home dad. I have no idea what I'd do, yeah. man. I'd be lost. All right, you cannot answer your home gym for this question, but what's <laughs> okay. the what's the best gym you've ever coached in? Cameron. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Cameron, nice. down in Durham. Yeah, so uh, an away trip when I was at Toledo, uh, when we went down and played at, at Cameron, just the atmosphere that we were a part of is just second to none. I mean, there's there's nothing bad about being in, in that uh, in that atmosphere. The students, the, the just the players, Coach K. Every you're just you're you're a visiting team going to play one of the best teams in the country, and you're kind of in awe before the ball is even tipped. And 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 for me, being from North Carolina, being a huge Duke fan, shoot, one of the biggest things for me was to shake Coach K's hand at the end of yeah, the game. Oh, yeah. like, oh man, I'm yeah. sure. So, yeah, I'd say Cameron was probably the best atmosphere that I was in. If you could change one thing about college basketball, what would it be? I'm a traditionalist. So I would say, and I would say most coaches would crucify me for saying this, but I want to go back to 64 teams in the NCAA tournament. I mean, what, what, what is it with 68? We, we've I mean, uh, like, we've gotten that answer a couple times. A couple people have said that to us, 64 teams, and just leave it alone. Yeah. Leave it alone, man. It's it's the perfect number. It's like 64 is perfect because what's going to end up happening at 68, then it's going to be 72. It's going to be 96. Be <laughs> yeah. And it's like, come on, you're, you're, you're watering it down and you're, you're losing your luster. So I, I'd say, yeah, uh, go back to 64 teams. If there's something that I could change, that would be it. Biggest misconception about junior college basketball? That they're bad kids. Yeah. I'll take it. That's a good kids. point. Yeah, that, that's a big-time generalization that gets put across, and it's just not right at all. No, I mean, do they come from challenged home lives? Uh, is there a common denominator between, you know, poor grades um, and and a challenged home life? Yeah. Maybe, you know, maybe there's – but you can't generalize and say they're all like that. 
But I think a lot of people have the misconception that you're coaching bad kids. And that's just, that's not the case. They're awesome kids. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're unbelievable. And when you get a chance to know uh, these guys and, and their stories and their background, you fall in love with them. And man, those relationships that you build at that level um, are just, they, they, they never leave you. I got guys still calling me up to this day asking how I'm doing and, and shoot, there was one there was one time two weeks ago um, that one of the players posted on Facebook that I coached five years ago, and he made a statement that, hey, I, I wouldn't be where I'm at without Coach Vanderslice in my life, and that's why I'm coaching. And that type of stuff, man, you're just like, oh, man, that's that's the best. Yeah. So, yeah, junior, I, I think that was over 30 seconds, but, yeah. <laughs> no, no. college, misconception. That's great. That's the good cheese right there. Uh, <laughs> pre-game routine, do you have any superstitions? oh man you know what i used to be a nap guy yeah but now i live 20 minutes away and i can't nap anywhere but my bed so i can't make that uh, trek back home and come back to the office without killing 40 minutes so uh i, I would say after pre-game meal um i don't eat much i box it up and when the guys go home and take their nap i, I go for a run work out uh, you know what? I'll say this. I get a coffee before pretty much every game. Smart. 7.30 or 3.30, it doesn't matter. I'm going to get a coffee. Get wired, get juice. I love get it. Get wired. Yeah, get your mind right, baby. Get that clarity. Yeah, yeah heck yeah. For a, get get a, uh, a quadzilla, four shots of espresso. I like it. <laughs> I don't know about that, man. I'll be calling last second plays. <laughs> man. The first minute. Hidden talent. Do you have any secret talents you'd like to disclose? Yeah, you know what? Not too many people know this about me except uh, the people in my family that live in Ocean City. Uh, pretty good poker player. Pretty good poker player. You know, um, now I'll say this. When I hit up AC, um, uh, my family gives me a hard time, all those Vanderslices. They're like, man, you're coming up for a week and a half. You're supposed to spend time with us, and you're spending two or three days in AC. We've 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 gambled we've gambled with Stephanie Gately a number of times. Oh, oh, now, 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 trust me, you go with her, you're going to be sitting beside the slot machine. Oh yeah, I can't do and that. then she tried to get I'm me a- to gamble with Bruce, and I'm like, all right, we're in a little bit of a different socioeconomic <laughs> class. It doesn't really work. He, he's his losses his losses are, are are okay. I'm hurting a little bit. That's right, man. Yeah, so yeah, she she likes to hit up AC, but I do as well. But I only get that trek once a year, so. The week and a half that I come up to OC over the summer, um, I got to hit up. I got to hit up Borgata at least two or three. Of, of course, I got some chips right now in my car. We'll do it together. Best basketball player in the Gately Vanderslice family. You're on. Okay. All right. I got you on this one. Now this comes with a precursor. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and say Steph. Steph is the the best basketball player uh, in our family, and here's why. Have you ever played with Steph? Before? Yes. Yes. No you one. No one played. plays hard against her, Mark. It's like, I do. Oh, well, I did. Well, no. It's it's not Steph. It's, listen. Have you ever played with Frank? <laughs> no, okay. I've never. I have never seen Frank do one athletic thing. <laughs> well, this is the one thing he does do. He sets screens, illegal screens, lots of illegal screens for Steph. That's what Frank does. Okay. So I was you. I usually had the luxury of playing at 34th Street and uh, some of the pickup games at St. Joe's and Richmond. Um, we were on the same team. But when you're against, when you play against them and you try to guard Steph, you literally are going to get a bruised rib or a broken nose coming off of a down screen that Steph uses off Frank. I'm telling you. So Steph is the best basketball player because Frank is playing beside her and setting a hundred screens every possession for him. And if you shoot. And it's not Steph, 
you're getting well, that, yeah, that, like, that that happens very regularly. <laughs> we played with like like I'm a screen setter as well, but like I we've played with like division one guys, division one girls, and like you still get yelled at if she's on the court. It's like, okay, this is you know Well, let me interject something. I set a pretty tough screen in a pickup game on Steph. This had to have been five, six years ago. And basically the whole Gately family wanted to fight me. Oh, yeah. That- I didn't understand because, you know what, everyone else is playing a certain way. Why don't I throw up the elbows she's, a little bit? She's literally – she's well, like I- Wayne Gretzky. Like, nobody hits – like, you don't – nobody touches her when she's on the court. Like, she she controls everything that goes on. And it's like her former players would come back and play, and they don't play really hard. So if you're not on her team, you're just not going to win. It's just – it's a very frustrating experience. When she gets the feet square, it's cash. Oh, yeah, she can it's shoot cash. it. She can shoot it. I mean, when, when, when she gets her feet square and it goes up, you might as well just count it. But I'm telling you, I, I, I had that same experience. You know, play three or four games at 34th Street on their team. You love it. You lose, and then all of a sudden your game gets split. And now we're playing against <laughs> Steph and Frank, okay? So now I'm getting bowed by Steph, or not not Steph, from Frank. I'm, I'm guarding Steph coming off of a screen. Frank's my uncle, okay? He's, he's blood, and he's setting a bow to my face. <laughs> To get Steph open. I'm like, are you, I got blood coming out of my nose. Frank, what are you doing? <laughs> I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm like, this is what I got. This is what I got to hear when we go back to dinner tonight. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, last segment, parting shots. Same two questions to every guest. I got both of them. Uh, what's the best advice you've ever been given? Respect the law of averages. Mm. Respect the law of averages. Um, you're not quite as good as you think you are, and you're not quite as bad as you think you are, right? Just kind of like that? In regards to time um, I, and, and work, I would say respect the law of averages. In, in the beginning of your career, you're going you're gonna to work three times harder and make three times less. That's life. At the end of your career, you're going to make three times more and work three times left, left, less. I'm sorry. You're going to work three times more and, and – or I'm sorry, make three times more and then work three times less. And so when that happens, enjoy that time. But you know what? Don't skip stages. You know, the law of average is going to be in your in your favor. Um, you just work your tail off at the beginning of your career. Learn the value of hearing the word no, uh, because you're going to hear it a lot. Don't let it don't let it kick you in the tail and, and make you give up. You know, just keep working. And, and the law of average is going to be in your favor. All right, last one. We're going to take it back a couple of years. You're face to face with your 25 year old self. What are you telling that person? You know what? You know, for me, uh, the the cornerstone of my career has been built off my faith, and so I would say early in my career there was there was more anxiety on what hasn't happened, um, being afraid of what might not happen. And so being able to be 40 at this point and reflecting on a lot of victories over the course of, of my tenure, I would look at my 25-year-old self and just say, hey, trust in the process, trust in the Lord. Um, good things are going to happen. Um, and just don't worry. You know, Everything is going to happen for a reason. Just keep working hard and, and placing your faith in me. And it's all going to work out. That's yeah. what I would tell Because, I mean, that, that's the hardest part. You're always like, when you're younger, you're always looking for like, all right, how can I make a little bit more money? How can I get another job? Like, what's next? What's next? What's next? And then by the time you're old enough, you're like, okay, there were some situations that are really good. And if I had kind of relaxed and been able to appreciate them, I might be better for it now. But it's, I think it's so, we were talking about this off the air, Mark. I think it's so hard when you're young to like take a step back and be like, man, this is fun. Like, this is, this is really, really cool. 
what do I really want to do? Not like, what is it? What's my career path supposed to look like? You know, enjoy the ride. Yeah. Enjoy it. And if you, if you put in the time, it's going to work out. Um, now there's going to be a lot of bumps and, and bruises along the way. You know, you're going to, you're going to get told no a lot, a lot, and, yeah. and you're not going to get yeah. hired a lot. <laughs> um, but if, 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 if you're driven and you're willing to put in that extra, extra little umph, you know, you're, you're going to make it out. Yeah. All right. Well, we have taken up a ton of your time. Uh, you have four games left in the regular season. They are at USC Aiken MBB on Twitter. Just how it spells. Go ahead and follow them. Follow them along to the uh, NCAA tournament as well. But I know four games left and then the Peach Belt Conference tournament. So, Mark, man, appreciate you sitting down and uh, best of luck the rest of the way. I think it's going to be a fun end of the season. This is fun. And I love that title. Create your shot, man. That's that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. All right, Mark. Talk to you soon, man. Bye.